Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. Today, we talk with Tim Cranton, who is our Year 1 Bachelors of Remote Paramedic Practice Advisor. Tim, can you introduce yourself? Tell us about your background, your qualifications, the, the current job you're in, and what are you doing now? So, my name is Tim Cranton and I'm one of the professional practice advisors for the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation. Uh, I'm also mentor to the first years of our BSc program in remote paramedic practice and uh, you'll find me in Malta teaching them as well when they're doing their uh, some of their modules. Um, I'm ex-British Army combat medic and uh, I'm also qualified as uh, uh, an HCPC paramedic, so registered in the UK. And I spent some time in the fire service as well, so I've got a, a mixed background when it comes to both medical and rescue. Um, I did my training to be an offshore medic, wow, over 20 years ago now. So I've been an offshore medic for, for quite a while. And I'm currently uh, working as an offshore medic with a company called United Healthcare. And I'm on the Shell Brent Charlie. So the Brent Charlie is actually one of the last remaining, or the last remaining, uh, of the Shell Brent oil platforms. So this installation has been here about 45 years now. And uh, it's currently being decommissioned. So I've only got a couple of of trips left here, but I, I'm looking forward to transferring over to a, to a new project, which will be a floating uh, production facility. But uh, yeah, as it stands, I am currently the offshore medic and uh, healthcare professional, HCP, they prefer to call it now, on the Shell Brent Charlie. Tim, uh, why did you become an offshore medic? So I became an offshore medic because it seemed like a natural progression uh, in terms of, of, of my career. So I left the British Army and uh, I actually went to work in uh, Iraq and Kuwait uh, and I was doing bomb disposal for, for uh, a couple of years. So this we are looking at the early 90s. So October 91, I came out of the army. And uh, as I said, I did two years, or roughly two years, maybe a bit more in, in Kuwait and Iraq. And uh, after I'd done that, I kind of got back to the UK and it was a question of deciding, um, you know, what was I going to do next? Obviously, there's, there's bills to pay. And I think that's one of the, the main motivations for most people is you're looking to transfer your skill set into something that, that has due reward. And certainly for me at the time in the early 90s, um, after doing some research, it made a lot of sense for me to move into that kind of environment because it was very similar to what I was already used to um, in the military. So uh, I made some inquiries and uh, found out about offshore medic training and uh, went ahead and did my offshore medic course. Uh, and at the time I was also working um, as a paramedic with a private ambulance company. So I was able to kind of finance myself uh, through it at that point. I actually took a loan from my mother-in-law. She did help me uh, when it came to getting on that uh, on that first course. But the main motivation was I needed something that was going to be um, a place where I could utilize my current skill set. And that was the skill set that I had from the military. 
and working offshore as a medic was the natural choice. That's pretty interesting. Um, I've, I've been wondering, how, how long have you been working offshore? So in terms of working offshore, as I said earlier, um, I left the army in uh, around October of 1991. Uh, and then I did a two years, uh, two and a bit years in Kuwait and Iraq doing uh, contract work. Uh, and this was clearing up um, spent munitions after the first Gulf War. And um, when I came back to the UK, uh, I, you know, I needed a job. So uh, I, I, I went offshore, did all my qualifications, did my survival, firefighting, etc. And uh, so I will have been offshore since 1994. Um, so it's, a, it's quite a long time. It's over 20 years, put it that way. Tim, I've, I've never been on an oil rig. I've never worked offshore, and, and I, I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few people in our bachelor's degree program who are looking for uh, a job, their first job or eventual job and working in the offshore. What is it like? What's the day-to-day? What, what is your experience? What is it like working as an offshore medic? Well, that's a good question. An offshore medic is not just a medic. I guess an offshore medic is a, is a mixture um, of quite a lot of things. Essentially, an offshore medic is the responsible person on board an offshore installation that's usually working within the oil and gas industry. And the main job of the medic is to provide emergency health care services and general health care services to everybody that's on board that installation. But at the same time, we are usually the occupational health focal point. So we're going to be looking after our crew in terms of any occupational health exposures that they might have. So that may be uh, noise, excessive noise. That could be chemicals, uh, hand arm vibration. There are a number of things that can affect your health whilst working offshore. Uh, So we're the focal point for those things as well. Uh, in saying that, in my time, um, I've also done radio op. I've also done uh, helicopter administration, and I've also been the safety advisor as well. So, an offshore medic is a mixture of jobs, but primarily there to look after the healthcare needs of all people on board the installation. Depending on the number of people, uh, will usually depend on how many medics there is. But I look after a crew of around 150 people. Most recently with COVID, we've had two medics on. So we've had days and night shift. But it's usually one medic for around 150 to 200 people. Tim, how would a paramedic who would want to work in the oil rig or ship or offshore location, how would they go about getting their first job? How, how, How do you get started in this? So to answer that question, I think... If you ask, where do you start? Um, Networking is probably the place where you start. So if you're interested in any kind of um, training courses or working in remote medicine, I think asking your peers or or asking people that you that you work with uh, is usually a good start. And of course, Google um, is usually the, the best one, I think, nowadays. Um, is getting yourself online, doing a broad Google search and asking, how do I become an offshore medic? Uh, 
there's an awful lot of information out there um, that will tell you what you can and I guess what you cannot do um, but I would say ask people like myself I, I have no issues with anybody dropping me a line um, at my college uh, email um, ask anyone else that you know who's an offshore medic obviously but no get yourself on the internet uh, get on Google and literally type in how do I become an offshore medic that's a usually a good place to start and then once you've done that really what you need to do is go through testimonials I guess and see what feedback people have given about courses they have done who they've done their those courses with and you know what successes successes they have had in terms of employment um, because you always want to know if you're going to a, a good training provider or not and there are some good ones out there and there's some I won't say bad ones but there are some that you know won't necessarily give you what, what, what you need um, I would argue that companies like Icarus and uh, Nottingham Hospitals NHS Trust they're probably the big two in the UK in terms of providing offshore medic training um, but getting on those courses is uh, is not easy because they're usually booked up uh, pretty far ahead but the company that I work for United Health um, we do our training with Nottingham Hospitals and the reason we're doing it with Nottingham Hospitals is because the tickets that they they provide the certifications are recognized within the kind of civilian world so you're going to get your advanced cardiac life support you're going to get your pre-hospital trauma life support certification within those within those courses um, go to a training provider and ask them questions um, and ask them about you know what are the prospects of, of getting employed there are also um, a lot of uh, companies out there United Healthcare is obviously one of them Icarus again is another one who actually provide medics um, offshore and you'll find that they will obviously have their web pages as well and they'll have recruitment usually on their web pages so you can search them failing that you can write to them email them um, or you can pick up the phone and call them um, and ask them, um, tell them that you're interested in becoming an offshore medic and where's the best place to start. There's actually some companies now that will provide the training to you. So they'll get you through your offshore medic course. They'll get you through your uh, survival course and your medical. But obviously there's a catch and the catch is essentially that you are going to be held um, to that company and, and their employee for a number of years so two three years in order to pay back um, essentially their investment in you um, I guess there's going to be good and bad things with that um, some people might not want to be held to you know one single entity but certainly for guys that are you know starting out and want to get their foot in the door it's actually not a bad option uh, and there's a couple of people that I've spoken to that have gone down that route and, uh, and and they've done pretty well and they've managed to get themselves offshore um, they've worked back the time they, they owe to the company and uh, they're they're doing really well um, yep if you want to be an offshore medic get yourself on the internet start speaking to people drop us a line and we'll give you uh, we'll give you a heads up How did you get your first job in the offshore industry so I got my first job offshore 
not long after I'd done my offshore medics course, um, during the, the during doing doing the training, uh, and I did it with a company called Medicos in Hull, and uh, there is offshore oil and gas in in Norwich, so we have what we call the Southern Basin. Um, and that's where you'll have a lot of gas platforms that are offshore Norwich and uh, Great Yarmouth, that particular area. And because it was local to me in that I lived in, in Peterborough and in Cambridgeshire at the time, um, getting there was kind of easier than, than going all the way up, up to Scotland. Um, so I did, my, I, did, I did my course there and that kind of got me in touch with companies that, that, uh, that employed offshore medics. Uh, but what I actually did is um, I bought myself a train ticket and I went up to Aberdeen with my freshly printed uh, offshore medics ticket. I did my survival and everything. And obviously I, I paid that myself at the time. I booked myself into a bed and breakfast for two, three days. And I had a list of companies, offshore employers, uh, that employed offshore medics and I literally turned up at their reception and I said my name is Tim Cranton I've a newly qualified offshore medic do you have any offshore medic jobs I can go today uh, and essentially that's kind of how I got my first job um, I literally went around a load of companies and uh, whilst I unfortunately I didn't go offshore within the two to three days uh, the following week when I was at home, um, I got a phone call to go back up to Aberdeen for an interview. Uh, and within the space of, I think, two weeks, um, I was actually working offshore. So I got my first job by getting on a train, putting my feet in people's in-trays, in companies' in-trays, saying I'm available for work right now. What have you got? Uh, and literally a week later, um, I was called up for an interview and... Um, uh, and I got a job within two weeks. And just to follow on from, from that question, about how did I get my first job. So obviously a lot of companies are looking for people with experience and it's very difficult to get your foot in the door if you don't have any experience. But one of the jobs that I, I actually interviewed for was working for a catering company. Now you think, why would a medic work for a catering company? Well, there was at that particular time, um, the, the catering company was providing what they call life support surface surf services so it wasn't just uh like stewards catering cr crew cooks and stuff like that uh, and chefs um they were actually looking to include medics so it was an, an overall what they call a facilities management concept and uh at the time you know i wasn't really bothered what i wanted to do was make sure that i got my feet in the door and i got myself some offshore experience so I actually took a job as the medic chief steward. Uh, and again, some of you who might even be offshore medics out there will probably be cringing when I'm saying that um, because there are, 
potential conflicts in that role, especially when it comes to hygiene, but you're also working for the catering company and how could you work for the catering company if you have to do inspections and stuff like that. But as it was, um, it, it got me offshore. It got me my first job. Um, which I did for about a year and it was actually really good because I also got to learn at the same time an awful lot about um, facilities management and catering and doing things like hygiene inspections uh, and especially food hygiene and food safety. Um, I learned an awful lot about that and one of the things I've done since is you know I've been sent on courses uh, on food hygiene um, but because I was already working for a catering company, they, they paid for all of those things for me as well. So it actually really helped when I decided to transfer over um, to another company to do something that was more health focused. Tim, looking back over your career, what would you say is the most challenging medical case that you had on an offshore oil rig? Okay most challenging case. There's been quite a few challenging cases, and I guess it depends how you think of it. In a remote location, it's not just about the patient and having to manage the patient and their condition and their problems. It's the bigger picture because it's not just about the patient. You have to be able to get the patient from the installation and get them somewhere else. Um, so you're not only managing their medical problems, you're managing the logistical problem. To come back to that question, um, I have had several cases that were acute abdomens. And they've been challenging in that I've had patients in what I would describe as extreme discomfort with other clinical issues, uh, being unwell, vomiting, um, severely dehydrated, in a lot of pain, um, and trying to get them comfortable so that I can, you know, give a good examination and provide the correct treatment. But the other challenge is being able to get them off of the installation and also get to the right place. So one case in particular, I had a, a, a young patient I actually knew quite well whose uh, friend had brought him up to the sick bay. And this was quite late. I think it was around uh, 9 or 10 o'clock in the evening. And uh, he was complaining of, of uh, really bad abdominal pains. And he this guy could not keep still. He just could not find a comfortable place to be able to... Um, to, to put himself. So obviously getting him into the sick bay, trying to get him to a point where I could actually do a really good examination um, w w was challenging in itself. Obviously I'm trying to explain what I need to do, but I need to get access to him. I need to be able to do basic things like take his observations, like take blood pressures. But when you have a patient that won't keep still, uh, and won't settle, so it's kind of combative, that can be a really challenging thing to manage. And I think what I ended up doing, and because it was an acute abdomen, I kind of went old school. And it's not just a question of getting IVs and things in your patient. It's, it's talking to them, um, trying to get them to calm down, getting them to breathe. And uh, once I kind of got him to a, a point where he was kind of a little bit more relaxed, I managed to get IV access. 
And once I got IV access, I gave him some, some pain medication um, to be able to treat the pain. That in itself settled him a little bit more. And then I boiled a kettle. I got a hot water bottle. I placed that on his abdomen and uh, managed to settle him down even more. So that in itself, with a little bit of diversional therapy and the medication starting to work, um, actually controlled his pain. So I was able then to give him a good examination. Now, during the examination, I identified that he had rebound tenderness. Um, so he was positive for McBurney's sign, etc. So I decided that this was not a patient that I wanted to stay and play with. It was obvious that I would need to evacuate this patient. And what I wanted to do was get him to the nearest um, medical facility so we could get a scan, so we could get um, ultrasound, etc., to be able to make a, a, a diagnosis, but potentially get him into um, surgery if that's what was needed. So as it was, what we ended up doing is we got a search and rescue flight so again, I've got to get in touch with the installation manager. He in turn gets in touch with the Coast Guard. I have to have a call with my topside uh, medical service. So I have to speak to the doctor, give him a full set of observations uh, on my patient, tell him the circumstances so that he can then authorize the search and rescue flight. So that search and rescue flight on a good day, certainly to somewhere like the Brent Charlie, is going to take around two or three hours. Uh, and then obviously, it will take that amount of time again to get them back to wherever it is they're going. But as it was, we managed to get search and rescue flight out. Uh, it took three hours to get search and rescue to the patient. Thankfully, by now, um, I've managed to good, get a good set of observations. Um, I've managed to eliminate anything that, that might be uh, immediately life-threatening. I've got good pain management on board. I'm using a hot water bottle and keeping my patient warm. Uh, and I'm essentially got my patient stable, got him on an IV, but I'm TKVO. Um, I'm not running any, you know, massive amounts of fluids in the patient. He's not in shock or anything. And uh, we got the uh, got the doctor on board uh, with a paramedic, and they took the patient back. And the patient, I think, went to Gilbert Bain. So that's one of the um, one of the hospitals um, in the um, Hebrides. And uh, because we're we're actually very north of the of the UK, um, so the Shetland Islands actually, uh, so we're north of the Shetland Islands. So Gilbert Bain is one of the hospitals there, and uh, the patient went into the hospital. But essentially, by the time the patient had got into the hospital, his condition had settled. Now this was unbeknown to myself. Um, I'd obviously tidied up and everything. Um, I didn't get to bed, I don't think, probably until around four or five o'clock in the morning by the time we'd got the patient away and uh, I you know, tidied everything up, cleaned everything up. Uh, I don't think I'd been in my bed much more than an hour when I got a phone call from the radio operator saying the patient had been discharged from hospital, um, which I didn't know anything about because I didn't get any feedback. So in the end, what I ended up having to do between myself the um, radio operator and then people within my company is then try and manage a patient who is essentially marooned um, somewhere in the Shetland Islands waiting or asking how he was going to either get back offshore or get home again. So the challenging part wasn't the medical part. The challenging part was actually all of the administration 
on the logistics to be able to get this patient where he needed to go. But when he actually got there, the hospital said they couldn't find anything. The patient had settled down and uh, he was discharged into the care of his own GP. But the patient didn't know what to do. So he literally turned up at the heliport asking, what should I do next? So then what we had to do is um, uh, speak to the helicopter operator. We then had to arrange to get him on a flight back to Aberdeen. When he got to Aberdeen, he went to uh, visit with the, his company uh, physician. So we had to get him with a, a, a doctor. And then from Aberdeen, once he'd been given clearance from one of our occupational health physicians, um, he then went home. Uh, and in the end, I ended up seeing him when I came back from my next offshore trip and he hadn't had um, a problem since. Um, question mark, grumbling appendix, but they said he had ultrasounds, he had tests, various tests, and uh, and everything was okay. So my most challenging patient wasn't a medical one. It was the logistics to get him medevac, to get him seen, but after he was discharged was act actually to get him home back into the care of his own GP. Of course, there have been other uh, challenging patients, certainly medically. Um, with 20-odd years offshore, there's a significant number of patients I've obviously seen. I've had uh, unconscious patients, uh, an unconscious patient with a silent MI uh, uh, who was unresponsive, uh, and we had to manage his airway. Uh, and do some ventilation for him. Again, bring out RC Rescue uh, with the patient being ventilated or assisted breathing because his breathing rate was rather slow. Um, but we uh, managed him for a good hour or so before we managed to get the helicopter on board. That was offshore in Great Yarmouth. And uh, yeah, the patient had a silent MI. He was taken to hospital uh, and he was discharged uh, several days later and he fully recovered. Um, other ones offshore, I had a patient who was on a standby vessel. I was on the uh, adjacent rig that the, uh, the, the vessel, or should I say the guard vessel, was, um, was looking after. And uh, it was one of the engineers. He was cleaning a fan. Uh, he managed to chop his fingers off. Uh, when he stuck his fingers inside the fan and unfortunately the fan hadn't been isolated uh, and it took his fingers away but because he was on the ship we couldn't um, we couldn't obviously land a helicopter on board because of the sea state it was moving around too much so we lowered off one of our lifeboats to just above sea level and the patient was put on a fast rescue craft we did a transfer from the fast rescue craft into the lifeboat we winched the lifeboat back up to the installation um, where I obviously treated him inside the lifeboat and back up onto the installation. And then uh, I treated him in the sick bay. We got RC Rescue out who were then able to land on board and then transferred the patient um, uh, over to there. And they took that patient in. Uh, I had another patient who ha was septic. Again, on another vessel, I was on a floating a production vessel or a tanker at the time and uh, we managed to get the patient to climb the sea ladder from a fast rescue craft uh, got him on board and this guy was in an awful lot of pain he was desperate to to be seen by by a medic 
Um, when I examined him, I could see that he was septic uh, because he had tracking from a from an infection, a leg, um, a, a boil, basically a cyst that he had on his leg. Uh, I got him on IV antibiotics and again uh, got him on an air sea rescue helicopter and got him away. There's been a number of patients. And again, the most challenging is not necessarily the injury or the illness. Um, it's actually been facilitating the rescue part and then getting them off to the installation to definitive care. Tim, can you give me two pearls of wisdom for anyone wanting a career in remote medicine? I think my first pearl is you need a good ground or base qualification. So if you are already qualified as a combat med tech, so you're in the military um, or 68 whiskey, if you're in the, in the US, a combat medic. So a military medic, a Navy medic or an Air Force medic. Um, that would be a, a really good kind of base qualification. Uh, and certainly in the UK, that would qualify you to do an offshore medics course. So you can't just, um, you know, have your, your nursing degree or your paramedic degree and then go offshore. Um, there's other things that you're going to need. So like I said, my, my first pearl is you need a good uh, base qualification um, that will give you the clinical used skills that you need and the the medical knowledge that you need that will then prepare you to go ahead and do an offshore medics course um, if you don't have a good grounding in kind of general medicine and uh, and pre-hospital care then most likely you won't be successful um, in gaining employment offshore and obviously getting through the offshore medics course um, the second pearl is never stop learning um certainly for me i think when i left left the army um and i you know i needed to to earn a good wage because i had a mortgage to pay i had a young family and everything at the time and as i said earlier that was kind of my main motivation was getting myself into a job that was going to be uh you know going to have a good reward um you need to be well qualified and to do that, you need to be well studied. But once you've done your study, never stop learning. So most certainly one of the things that's opened up opportunities for employment for me is the additional courses that I've done on top of my, my base qualification. So as I said, I started off as a combat medic. I then did my, my NHS paramedic training. So uh, I was able to get on the first register for paramedics in the UK uh and what was then the cpsm um for council for, for professions allied to medicine one of those it's now the hcpc so the healthcare professions council um but you know in that time i've qualified as a radiation protection supervisor um i have my full maritime radio operators um qualifications i qualified as a safety advisor uh, and went through what we call NEBOSH, so the National Education Board for Occupational Safety and Health um, qualifications. I've done food hygiene. There's all of those additional bolt-on courses that make you more employable. So second uh, uh, pearl of wisdom is 
get more qualifications, never stop training, never stop learning, because it will always be to your advantage. Tim, I would say that people who are listening to this, there's going to be somebody that wants to work on a North Sea oil rig. What, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, you've got to get out there and you've got to sell yourself. Uh, and it's not going to come to you. You're going to need to go out and find it. Um, there are definitely opportunities out there, but I can also tell you there's some pretty good medics out there too. So you're going to have a lot of competition that you're up against. Um, and that's, you know, that's normal. I, I think that's normal for, for most jobs nowadays. There's a lot of people that are going to be going for the, for the same job. But what you've got to be is the best candidate. And in order to be the best candidate, you're going to need to seek out employment and you're going to need to want to do the job. But do your research. And uh, really, that's that's the thing I, I think I could probably advise is do your research, go out there uh, and find the job that best suits you and interview and practice uh, interviews. And if you're going to go for a job interview, please do not go in your jeans and T-shirt. Um, go with your best shoes, your best trousers, a shirt, a tie, and a jacket. Have all of your certifications with you. Have an up-to-date resume with you. And any information that you think might be relevant or you could get asked for. In other words, not only be the best candidate for the job, but look like you're the best candidate for the job. Tim, we have a question from one of our potential students who is looking into our Bachelor's of Remote Paramedic Practice program. They're asking if they can get a job in the offshore industry with our quorum degree. Yes, so that's a good question. Um, like I said earlier on, you've got to have a good base qualification. So if you are already a nurse, uh, or you're already a paramedic, or you come from any of the, of the services, so Navy, Army, Air Force, um, you've, you're going to have a, a base qualification. But, you know, not everybody has had the opportunity or, or you know, wanted to go through the military. Um, there are people that may have come from things like I'm trying to think of students that we've had uh, that have come from mountain rescue. So maybe already have some kind of involvement involvement in medicine, uh, in pre-hospital care provision, but want to take it to the next step. Um, some people don't necessarily want to be nurses. They like the idea of being a paramedic, but they don't necessarily want to be driving around you know, in an ambulance. So what's the, what's the other alternative if you don't want to go through that process? Um, and one of the obvious ones is, is getting a CoROM degree. Um, okay, that's going to sound biased because I'm a faculty member for, for the college. But one of the things that kind of brought me into doing this program as well and, and kind of supporting it is I think it's really important to have that base level of qualification. And the CoROM degree is going to do that for you. I mean, you can't, uh, you know, essentially get most of these jobs nowadays unless you have some form of degree. Paramedic training, that's now a degree uh, program in the UK. Nursing degree program, that's been around for, for, for a long time. So you're going to need to have at least three years of a good degree program. 
the nice thing about the, the, the college degree, the CORON degree, especially in remote paramedic practice, is it's going to be covering all of those things and is going to set you up um, for working in a remote location because that's how we orient the training. Uh, we orient the training in, into in literally on within the first year. Um, we, we take it into a clinic-based type environment that could be a you know a remote clinic somewhere in the jungle or could be somewhere in the in the desert. It could be in Africa. Um, it could be in any place really really in the world. So we, we start that off certainly within the first year, uh, but then we'll be taking people out onto the ground. Um, and we put our students in the re resource poor environments um, so they get used to having to, you know, think and become MacGyver medics. And I think that that's also what you want is you want a program, wh whatever choice you make or whatever program you decide you want to study, you need to look at the end goal. Where do I want to go with this and how can I be best prepared? Um, you've got to have that base qualification. And I think definitely the college degree in remote paramedic practice practice is up there. Uh, it's forefront, um, you know, with the other degrees that you could potentially get either in nursing um, or in um, in being a, being a paramedic or any of the X services. So can I get offshore with a CORON degree? Yes, you can. That will be a base qualification for you which would then qualify you to be able to do an offshore medics course. Once you've done that, obviously you're going to need to do your offshore uh, survival and firefighting. And also with that, you are going to need an offshore medical as well. Now, this is not just for the UK. Um, the offshore medics course in the UK, um, I've certainly found open things up internationally for me as well. It's one of those courses that's... Um, kind of been seen as a standard and uh, and the standard before you can get onto that course is having uh, followed some form of degree in either nursing or paramedicine. Tim, what different types of offshore installations are there? Are, are they all just drilling for oil? Well, the answer is no, it's not just oil rigs. I think I've worked pretty much on every installation that there is within the oil and gas industry. So the fixed installations, so that's what we commonly known as the, as the oil rigs, uh, you have what we call semi-submersible. So you'll have an oil rig that essentially floats, but it's moored to the seabed uh, and it on, sits on large pontoons that, that, that float. There's floating production storage and offloading, so FPSO. So that's essentially converted oil tankers or purpose-built installations that are essentially a, a boat. They're a floating installation, so they'll have a hull. And again, they will be moored to the seabed. Um, I think it takes a special kind of person to work on an FPSO uh, for the simple reason you need to have sea legs. So if you're thinking of working as an offshore medic and you don't have good sea legs, don't work on a floating production uh, facility. Um, we have other fixed installations that we might call normally unmanned or NUIs. So these are installations that don't have people living on board. But what people do is they'll go onto a helicopter like with a maintenance crew, and they will fly to those installations. They'll do whatever in, uh, maintenance work needs to be done during the day, and then they'll down man it. So it will get um, it will get left empty. Um, so there's an awful lot of, of flying around. 
um, that can be a pretty good job and I've actually done that as well because it's because of the diversity it's actually quite interesting um, in terms of floating as well installations I mentioned guard vessels or supply vessels uh, they provide safety cover so if there was an incident on board an installation they um, they would help with anyone that obviously had to abandon the installation uh, so you can work on those um, trying to think what else I think that's about it it's mainly fixed installations uh, you've got semi submersibles which are, are, are floating oil rigs you've got floating production storage offloading which is tankers you might work on an oil tanker itself um, as well but it's not just uh, offshore in the middle of the sea uh, it could be drilling sites as well that's another in type of installation so you could have a drilling rig so the idea being is they actually drill for the oil um, they'll lay down a subsea template uh, which is where the the oil well will be and then the oil rig usually comes along after they've done the drilling and uh, it gets constructed over the top of that so that the oil reserves can be extracted from the uh, from the seabed Tim, have you ever been involved in a major emergency or major incident whilst working on an offshore installation? When a lot of people think of offshore, they think of uh, Piper Alpha. And we all know that, that Piper Alpha was one of the worst um, incidents that, that has ever happened offshore, certainly in the UK. Um, and unfortunately, lives were lost um, as a consequence of uh, a fire and explosion on board. Uh, the installation. Uh, so the answer to that question is yes. I was on uh, a floating production and storage offloading facility. This was in 2012 and the facility itself had had some maintenance issues. Um, we'd had some leaks and uh, whilst they weren't major uh, it was necessary to do a lot of uh, remedial work the installation had to be shut down, but we still had oil uh, reserve on board. So we still had some oil, uh, etc., in our tanks. But during 2012, and I'm trying to think of the time of the year now, um, it would have been late in the year. So you can expect, certainly in the UK North Sea, some pretty bad weather conditions. So essentially in 2012, I think it was around April, May time, um, we probably had a, the worst storm it's that it was that kind of 50 year storm so we were looking at a predicted between 60 to 100 knot winds i think we had 50 50 meter seas maybe it was something like 70 foot seas either way um, the vessel was moving up and down an awful lot but the weather conditions actually got so bad um that the the, the vessel itself suffered significant damage uh, and we had a lot of containers, etc., on board at this time. So not only did we suffer storm damage from the waves, which actually took off uh, some of the handrails around the deck, we had what we would call green water. So that means that the, the sea will actually swamp the deck. Um, we actually had containers that, that because the, the role of the vessel was so extreme, despite the fact we had containers that were fixed to the deck, um, the angle was so great that some of those containers uh, slid across the deck and tore up the deck. We had containers on our roof 
that slid off of the uh, one of the modules, uh, which was where a lot of the power generation was. And when it was uh, when it was sliding off, actually it was a it was a workshop uh, container. It took out one of our emergency fire pumps, um, so it meant our firefighting capability was significantly reduced. Now, obviously, at this moment in time, all of the installation is on general alarm status. Uh, and I wasn't a medic at the time. I was actually one of the safety advisors. So I was actually the emergency response team leader or the fire team leader. Um, we had containers that had contained batteries. Uh, so we ended up with a small fire on deck because these were... Um, uh, they had volatile chemicals in, and if they come in contact with, with air, then they can ignite. Uh, we could actually see on the video camera a small fire, but because we couldn't go outside, if we had committed any of the fire team members out on the deck, they would have probably been just washed overboard. So there was nothing we could do. We couldn't get evacuate the installation. Um, the best place to stay was actually on board. If we put lifeboats into the sea, um, then, yeah, we were on the biggest lifeboat, so the best place to stay was actually on board the installation. Um, but the aftermath of that, after at least 10 plus hours of violent movement, um, extreme roll, which caused significant structural damage to the installation, uh, thankfully, the, the fire was extinguished by a significant amount of water that was swamping the deck. Uh, thankfully, we didn't have any gas uh, releases. Most of that inventory had gone, but we did have oil on board. Um, although our tanks weren't, weren't full, as I recall, but that inventory was still there. One of the biggest issues we had was we had uh, normally occurring radioactive material that we were cleaning from sand that we'd taken out of some of our tanks because you get sand in, in oil. And uh, a lot of that, along with chemicals, was also strewn across the deck. So there was that hazard as well. And the kind of the following morning when we were able, as an emergency response team, to get out on deck to try and secure some of the things that had got loose so that they wouldn't uh, uh, cause any further problems, um, we identified we had quite a high kind of radioactivity from from the norm, from the normally occurring radioactive material that you find in sand and oil and gas uh, residues, hydrocarbon residues. So we had that to contend with as well as some corrosive chemicals, chemicals that are used for um, getting air out of uh, of oil and gas, uh, used for drying gas. Um, so there were a significant number of hazards. I'd say that was the worst um, incident that I've been involved in. Thankfully, no injuries. Everybody remained safe. And we literally just had to ride out the storm. But I would argue it was one of the most scariest times of my life because you really just don't know what's going to happen next. Tim, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for your input on what life is like with the offshore oil rig. And we will see you next time. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, to talk to you. And, and again, if um, if anybody has any questions, then please don't hesitate to contact me at my uh, at my CoROM address, and I'll try and offer as much advice as I possibly can when it when it comes to being the offshore medic. And uh, again, thank you for the opportunity.
This has been a presentation from the College of Remote and Offshore Medicine Foundation. If you would like to earn CPD credit for this podcast, you can join the Council of Members. Being a member of the college gives you free CPD credits, free access to the virtual field guide, and discounts on our e-learning courses. You can join the team on the college website, which is quorum, C-O-R-O-M, quorum.org.